Hey, it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. We've discussed on this podcast before about how risks are converging. That's bad news. But the good news is that our solutions can converge as well. Today, I'm joined by Mark Podlasi to discuss the inclusion of Indigenous peoples in Canada's economy and how that can contribute to the transition to net zero. Mark is the Director of Economic Policy and Initiatives at the First Nations Major Projects Coalition, a national 65-plus Indigenous nation collective seeking ownership of major projects such as pipelines and electric infrastructure. He is also the Director of Governance at the First Nations Financial Management Board, leading the development of an Indigenous response to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. A Harvard University graduate, Mark has been at the forefront of governance and infrastructure issues around the world, with extensive global experience in the planning, permitting, and construction of capital projects connected to energy, resource extraction, and community infrastructure. Learn from Mark about how the writing of our nation's greatest shame can help address one of the world's greatest existential threats. Thank you for joining me, Mark, and welcome to At Risk. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. So to kick things off, you know, a modest question, is capitalism broken and would a greater Indigenous participation in Canada's economy help fix that? Well, that's a big question. Is capitalism broken? I would very much like to speak to how Indigenous people can participate better in the projects that are already in place in Canada and what's coming next. So I wouldn't say capitalism broken as much as it can be adapted better to suit Indigenous people. Fair enough. And so what, what would some of those changes look like? Well, right now in this country, Indigenous people have been kept out of the mainstream of the economy for nearly 150 years. You're starting to see greater participation, but the challenges we have on our communities of not having enough water, not having enough own source revenue to provide for self-determination of priorities like language or education or environmental development and protection, that needs to change. And as Canada is moving towards an economy that is very much natural resource based, we have to be better involved in the benefits and risks of the economy. Yeah, absolutely. So what, you know, I, I can't help it, my mind always goes to how do we define success? And, and, and is there a way for us to measure it so that we get away from aspirational statements and really uh, have a common language of determining whether we're making progress or not? Well, I think you just have to look at the metrics which are reported quite regularly in the newspaper across Canada. Indigenous people have less opportunities for educational success. We have less opportunities in terms of earning incomes that are at the median level of Canadians. There's a lot of those factors that are pretty simple to look at to see that Indigenous people are not participating fully in the Canadian economy and the wealth that come, comes from, from this country. Yeah, so it's really looking at it from 
you know, uh, an economic well-being, but also a health and safety, I guess, uh, point of view. How, what, what is the health status of, of Indigenous people? What are, what are the economic status and what is that access to essential resources looks like? I think that's what you're saying. Yes, across the board from an economic participation, you also touched on the social indicators of health, education. Those are all lower than the Canadian average. And if you look at Indigenous people is if we were a separate country, we would be low on the United Nations list of where economically, socially health indicators would indicate we should be in a first world country. And so if I were sitting on the board of of a company, um, let's say a resource-based company, you know, what should I be demanding to see to to really understand uh, whether my company is living up to economic reconciliation? I think where companies are going and it's starting now is that they understand that it's not a matter of just getting products to market or, as you said, resources out of the ground to market or into export. We now have a situation where investors are demanding to know, are these companies doing the right thing socially and economically and environmentally across all their operations? And that's not just the final product, that's the sourcing. Where did this product come from? Where did these materials start? And what is the impact of my investment in this company on the greater good of society? So, you know, I can't help it. I always get down to the basics of of governance. So... Really, this is something that, that your ESG committee should be looking at. Do I have that correctly? Yes, you are, except there's a challenge around ESG, environmental social governance investment standards. ESG is an externally derived framework or standard, and there are many of them. Companies will then have to reach certain thresholds to prove that they are ESG compliant. They're compliant with that standard. Uh, I do a lot of work with the First Nations Major Projects Coalition, and we have members, uh, 90 of them across the country, First Nations, who have been approached by companies telling them, oh, don't worry, our project, our project or our product, ESG compliant, we have your interests at heart. But when we looked into it, there's been no Indigenous involvement in the setting of these standards, the evaluation of them, or the application. So ESG is faulty in addressing Indigenous concerns and Indigenous rights, and reducing the risk that can come to a company that doesn't do this properly. Right. So your ESG committee, if you have one, should be seized of this, but not solely rely on pre-existing frameworks. Yes, because most of these frameworks have come from outside the country. So if you're looking at the big ones like SASB or TCFD or GRI, they were developed in either American or European centers. So they apply to the world, but do they apply to the situation that we find ourselves in Canada, where Indigenous rights are so front and centre across the country? They do not. When we were doing our research in this, one of those standards, GRI, is the most egregious. It actually has a section, section 411, that says Indigenous interests and rights are only material if a legal court action is initiated, which forces Indigenous people to go straight to the courts as soon as a proponent or company shows up in the territory. And that's hardly helpful to the company, certainly not helpful to the greater overall ESG standard of that company. Yeah, I mean, it's disastrous all around. I mean, is that really how we want to use our judicial resources? I mean, that's a terrible way of thinking about it. That really doesn't serve anyone. Maybe maybe the lawyers. I say that as a lawyer, I guess. (laughs) 
Well, from a and from a company perspective, they will be going into this usually with very good faith, thinking we are following this standard, the ESG standard, which is required for them to access capital. It's required for them to get a decent rating from the market, but it's missing in a key element of the Canadian dimension. And that's a challenge that has to be addressed. There is a new international ESG type framework coming. It's called ISSB, International Sustainability Standard Board. The question for us as Indigenous people going, does that one include Indigenous interests and values? And for, at this point, no. They apparently are going to address it, but the question comes, how do you do an international global standard applied to everyone and ensure that the Canadian dimension shows up in the standard? It's a good question and hasn't been answered yet. Yeah, it almost seems like there there needs to be, you know, we can have a global standard and and you know, I think, you know, we can see what the benefits of a global standard are, you know, if companies aren't limited to one jurisdiction, uh, to create a common language, but it almost seems like there needs to be a section dedicated to local uh, imperatives. And that's what we've been calling for at the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. There needs to be some made in Canada, or at least tailored to Canada solution that highlights the risk and the opportunity of having Indigenous people involved. The risk, of course, is if you don't have Indigenous people involved, that there'll be delays, court action um, in, in that company getting to market with this product. But the opportunity, of course, is if you do have Indigenous people involved and it's recognized and substantively included in the investment, that should be a bonus to the company, either trying to raise capital or getting to markets or increasingly having their product show up on the world stage. A buyer or investor should then know that this is a product that meets my ESG or an investor's ESG criteria about doing good for the people and the planet. This clearly relates to the S, but it's, you know, there's huge opportunities in terms of engaging meaningfully with our Indigenous peoples in terms of the E as well. And I understand um, that there's a new report that that talks about this. Can can you share some of the opportunities? Because we so often talk about the risks of not meaningfully including Indigenous peoples and projects. What, What are the opportunities in terms of the transition to net zero? Well, in transition to net zero, it's one of the greatest challenges we've faced collectively. And this is, this is not just an Indigenous question, it's everybody. Our planet's atmosphere is at risk. So the interesting thing going forward now is that Canada has the minerals required for the transition. We are going to need, just for car batteries, for example, by 2030, which is when we're supposed to have switched over to 50% electric vehicles, we're going to need 14 times more, more nickel. Equal numbers in terms of copper, lithium, iron ore, magnesium. These are all minerals that we have in Canada. But to get to the 2030 deadline, that's eight years away, we're going to have to ramp up our game because right now it takes 10 to 15 years to get one mine operating in Canada. Hmm. So the challenge we face as a collective economy is how do we participate in one of the greatest economic opportunities to save our environment in our current form? There's a challenge there. We won't make it unless there's some way to streamline, encourage, and include what is probably one of the greatest risks to Canada in natural resources, which is Indigenous people. When we look at this from an Indigenous perspective, Indigenous people are not against projects. We're pro-smart projects. So the question then is, how do we do this in a way that benefits the industry, 
the economy, indigenous people, and the entire Canadian population. So how do we do that? Is it is it a matter, you know, we've talked about frameworks, but, you know, are, are, are we seeing meaningful consultation happening? Is the, are there good precedents for this? And, and where, where does, I guess, the capital and focus need to come from in terms of capitalizing on this opportunity? You're starting to see some great progress in Canada, especially around the clean energy sector where you have Indigenous people not only consulted, but the next level is consent, because that's where we're going. Canada now follows the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, and it calls for the consent of Indigenous people in development. What you're starting to see now is Indigenous people starting to take equity positions in clean energy projects, which allows the Indigenous people a couple great benefits. One, it's a seat at the table. So there's discussion there about how the project will be built, how it will be What will the environmental impact be? But more importantly, there's a revenue stream that starts to come back to the community from having that equity. So that is starting to happen. It's happened faster in clean energy, or at least in energy, because energy has a regulated return. It's easy to know what your your profit will be or your your income stream over a 25-year or longer period because there's a guaranteed buyer, there's a fixed rate of return, and then it's easier to access the capital. That is tougher in mining, and that, that's going to be a challenge on critical minerals in this country because minerals generally don't have a fixed return. They're market-based commodities. So that's the next challenge. And this is something Indigenous people are looking at. How do you access the capital to get the equity in these projects so it benefits the communities? So the next challenge, the next level, will be access to capital, access to affordable capital, rather. And so who can play a part in that solution? If you look at the First Nations Major Projects Coalition on our resources tab, we've done a lot of comparative analysis of not only projects in Canada and companies, but we've gone worldwide. How have Indigenous people worldwide tackled this challenge? Because we're not asking as Indigenous people for corporate handouts or equity grants. These are commercial terms that Indigenous people are looking towards investing in projects that meet the objectives and aspirational goals of the First Nation that have a capital return. So what we found is that in Canada, if you look at how it's been done, there's a a variety of solutions. There's an organization called the First Nations Financial Authority. It sells bonds in New York and on Toronto to bring forward the cash stream that that is uh, is being proposed by a First Nation, if they can show that there is a fixed revenue stream over a 20, 35 year period, that will provide capital to the nation now to make the investments. But they capped out. They have raised over a billion dollars and that's been invested in Canadian Indigenous communities and projects and companies across the country. But that dwarfs what's coming with net zero. Net zero, According to Mark Carney recently at COP26 has announced that there's over $100 trillion worldwide looking for investment opportunities. And we in this country have all the pieces minus the Indigenous risk. So if we can fix that, then we should be able to make good good progress on, on, on attracting some of that money. And... I assume, you know, this is this is a multi-party effort. Like how 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 do we convene the appropriate parties to unlock this value? Indigenous people right now have access to a few opportunities through government to raise capital at 
affordable capital. I'm going to stress that so many times because as we as indigenous people can find capital, but sometimes it'd be at a at credit card rates, 20, 30, right. 40%. The risk is just too high. The reason for that is because of the history of the country. We have land assets, but they're held in trust by the government. And we can't use those as collateral to access traditional mm -hmm. markets. What you're finding now is that in Alberta and Ontario, there are organizations uh, in Alberta. It's the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, which provides loan guarantees to projects that are commercial uh, ready, but the Indigenous people can't find capital. That was one option. So it's a government uh, solution. There's one in Ontario as well, the Ontario Aboriginal Loan Guarantee Program, same thing, but they're vastly oversubscribed. So there needs to be some push on the government side to assist to fix the problem that they created with the Indian Act <laughs> around access to capital. Either that be a federal loan guarantee program or some sort of commercial structure or some sort of tax audits, uh, edits, excuse me, and to make that happen. On the private market side, you're starting to see companies to becoming very creative in either doing uh, low capital access or allowing the First Nation to have access to their balance sheets or, or capital costs, that's starting to happen. But there's no one solution. It's going to take a number of, of, of coordinated attempts between government industry and, and First Nations to make this work. Yeah, I, I guess I catch my breath a, a little bit because I'm so excited about the opportunity, not just the economic one, but, but the opportunity to actually elevate um you know quality of living um but right now it seems hard to do big things in this world like there's so many things that that, that tend to drive us apart or, or or you know insert wedges um in you know in between our collaborative opportunities um do you do, do you have concerns about about our, our ability to to kind of come together to to get this done i am positive when I look at the advancements that's happening project by project or companies and First Nations, there are lots of them happening across the country. And again, First Nations Major Projects Coalition on their website will have them listed. What I get concerned of is that we get stalled by thinking, oh, it's too big of a problem. Mm. Um, it, it, we'll hear from First Nations at times saying, oh, we must have a seventh generation solution. We must think seven generations ahead. But when these things start to happen, it's probably better to take a 30-day approach going, what can I do now as a company CEO in the next 30 days to advance to these opportunities in a way that meets all my obligations to society, to the environment, to the community, and to my shareholders? So I am positive when I look at all the examples of where it is happening. What causes me that greater concern, though, is this net zero challenge. Eight years. That's all we have to meet our first climate deadline. And I don't know if people understand that in this country. When you look at the large issues like net zero, 2030, eight years from now, is our first major deadline, 50% transition of vehicles to electric batteries. Eight years. Are we going to get there? Canada has a massive role to play in this. But if we don't get moving on fixing the policy barriers that are in place for Indigenous people to access capital, to participate in the greater economy, we as a nation will miss that opportunity. One, from an economic point of view, as I mentioned, there's $100 trillion right now looking for places to invest in the net zero solutions. But then a greater question is, what about our climate? Are we going to make it? 
are we going to all go down together because we can't figure out a policy question around capital access? It seems a bit strange to get into the situation as advanced as we are as, as a country, that it's a policy question that puts us at risk. That's a very um, helpful way of thinking about it. It, it, it almost creates uh, embarrassment if, uh, if we're not a- able to get through this, right? Um, it just appropriately um, delineates uh, the, the, the size of the opportunity, but not even just the size of the opportunity, our, our, our need to get this done for, for our own health and safety. Um, and shows kind of how silly maybe some of these obstacles seem. It would be very strange if we miss our climate deadlines and we're looking back at an apocalyptic climate situation and we think, huh, we could have gotten through this if we had fixed the Indian Act from 1886 or 1885. It's like, what were we thinking? It is a bit strange. You look at other countries in the world and how they're trying to tackle this. There are inclusion mechanisms in public policy that are st- which were astounding to us when we were doing our research. In New Zealand, for example, they had come to a national conclusion that the new international investment standards that are coming, the ISSB, doesn't suit their national character. So they have gone as far as to commission a sidecar standard, which will incorporate in indigenous values at its core, because New Zealand sees Maori indigenous values as national, not just indigenous, national interest. So they actually have commissioned the Maori to write the sidecar standard to ensure that investments coming into that country meet the values that they have deemed collective, indigenous, non-indigenous together. We should be doing that. This country has all the pieces to make that happen. But it's New Zealand who's going first. Hmm. Well, uh, let's draw some inspiration from from New Zealand. And you also mentioned, you know, some projects that 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 form the basis of your positive outlook. Is there any one project um, in particular you you would encourage us to take a look at uh, on the website? If you look at some of the examples, uh, especially in the electricity sector, and I keep coming back to the energy sector because there has been some great creative thinking in there from companies, from government, from First Nations. Alberta has something called the Alberta Power Line. It was originally built by ATCO out of the Canadian Utilities Company. And what they've done is that uh, after they constructed it, they made available or made an option available to Indigenous people to take ownership in it. Indigenous people now, seven uh, Indigenous communities in Alberta, now own 40% of that line guaranteed return 25 years a high voltage power line and that now is owned 40 percent by indigenous people there are other examples like that in the country as well the uh, east-west tie line in ontario similar situation indigenous people taking an equity stake in it and becoming the lines people the servicing the 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 upkeep of those projects those are long-term environmentally friendly projects those fit that model of what we've been talking about what is a mutually beneficial solution that includes Indigenous people deeply in the success of that project. And there are those happening across the country in the energy sector. In the mining sector, you're starting to see creative options like that appear, especially in those projects that are related to critical minerals required for the energy transition, or the, um, yeah, the energy transition for climate. And uh, there are some in the ring of fire that are happening. We don't hear about them in the national press that often because they're usually one-on-one engagements that 
require the demonstration of what consent means. And that is encouraging. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, w- one question for you. When when we see equity positions being taken, does that displace the need for community benefits agreements or 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 do we need both? We need both. An equity position by an Indigenous party in a commercial enterprise is a commercial transaction. It's not a community transaction. The community's interest will still need to be met with an engagement agreement, as you mentioned, an impact benefit agreement or some sort of participation agreement. But these questions of Indigenous people becoming equity owners is a commercial issue. Also want to point out, when a First Nation makes an equity investment in a project, they have given consent, de facto consent, because it's very hard to argue that you haven't given consent to a project if you've made a cash investment in it. (laughs) But that makes Indigenous people technically co-proponents. And that should speed through the permitting process if the government recognizes that. And have there been innovations on the community benefits agreement side as well that, that, that you know, forms the basis of your positive outlook? The community benefits are separate from what we've been talking about. I've been talking very much about the commercial side of, of co-investing with Indigenous people. On the impact benefit agreement, I don't know if a lot of listeners know this, impact benefit agreements are usually covered by non-disclosure agreements brought up by the companies because companies don't want generally other parties to know what they've reached as an agreement with a community. Communities are at a disadvantage then because a lot of these communities are trying to figure out, well, what should we be including in an IBA? What's the best case, the worst case? What's the, the middle? That information is not available. So if there's a commercial party listening going into an IBA, you would probably help everybody if you allowed those agreements to be shared so people could see what is expected. Because right now, nobody knows. And that's a challenge for all parties. That is a challenge. That seems like, um, it feels a a little bit analogous to me, like non-competes, right? And, you know, we've at least seen uh, Ontario take the step of um, basically eliminating those uh, clauses in employee agreements because they saw it at once, just like you're articulating, as uh, as an impediment to uh, innovation. So it, it would seem like this is a pretty similar situation. We, we we need to get rid of those non-disclosures. Those non-disclosure requirements come from companies generally. They do not come from First Nations because First yeah. Nations in any negotiation would be assisted knowing what's reasonable and what's not. And every negotiation on an IBA right now, impact benefit agreement, is bespoke. They, they start from zero because nobody, unless unless the First Nation has the experience or the access to that information, it's a one-off agreement. That's tough <laughs> to, 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 to say an understatement, but that is really tough. tough. It's very tough for First Nations in that situation because think about it. If you were a First Nation in Northern Ontario or, or the Northwest Territories, you've been approached by a proponent. These projects now are usually in the billions of dollars, especially if they're going to be in natural resources or anything, actually. A pipeline will be $5 billion if it's a linear, long linear project. Same with a mine. A, a, a modern mine now can be 4 to $5 billion. And you have a, a First Nation who may not have the capacity or the experience to understand the parameters of that project from a financial perspective or an, an environmental. This is not to say that First Nations are 
lacking in desire. It's just that even, even somebody in downtown Toronto, Montreal, or Winnipeg may have a hard time getting their head around what is the world market, uh, what are the energy markets, world markets for nickel? What, where should they be positioning themselves? That's a challenge. If First Nations could access that, those agreements, or at least the parameters and the other First Nations have access, then that would theoretically make it much easier. Yes, absolutely. Um, and learn from mistakes. I mean, any person who's ever entered into a contract for the first time, that first contract uh, never represents their best foot forward, right? You you learn, it becomes a practice and, and you learn from, from doing and you iterate and um, you seek the counsel uh, of others, right? Um, if it is your first time. So uh, that, that seems to me to be... Uh, I was going to say low-hanging fruit, um, but you know, uh, I could see why the companies would probably uh, push back on that. But it just seems like that is such an important step to take to to basically um, not allow the the non-disclosure of these agreements. Can you imagine if you were going to buy a house, an average Canadian going to buy a house, and there was no format for a mortgage? How long would it take you? Would you feel comfortable going into negotiations up against a big bank if there were no standard forms, there was no parameters, there was nothing to work from as the homeowner? It's daunting. It's, it's the perfect analogy, right? Um, because we, because everybody knows it's complicated, but nobody really knows the details as to why it's complicated, right? Uh, if you're if you're not a real estate lawyer, exactly. Um, exactly. Okay, so 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 we we have uh, we have a very clear item to to, to put on a, on our list of requested policy changes here. Um, so let me let let me let me take the conversation in a slightly different direction. Um, the pandemic, um, in terms of economic reconciliation, did, did did the pandemic put a pause on things, or were were there's you know, positive ground um, actually acquired through, you know, what, what, what's been a difficult period, but also a period, you know, rife with lessons learned? That's a big topic and a big question. <laughs> the pandemic hit uh, a lot of our communities hard. Uh, we are remote. Um, in my nation, we lost over 20 elders in the first wave. It was devastating. The, the vaccines were not available. And then a lot of the remote communities were remote. So elders and community members were forced to go into urban centers and then return home with materials or food. It, it was tough. From a positive point of view, I think what it's demonstrated to the country is that we don't have to have the entire economy focused on urban centers. You started to see a, a transfer of work, of, of connections through internet, through through video conferencing, uh, you start to see a distrib distribution of the work across the country. In theory, that should benefit Indigenous communities if they have access to high speed. Again, the issue around infrastructure and communities, but those communities right. who do, it has been helpful. The question going forward now is that how do we solidify that into something that benefits communities? Is it, is it only employment? Can we use it for distance education? It's demonstrated that you don't have to move off the reserve. But now what? Because you're starting to see as things are opening up, things are going back to the way they were. You're starting to see requests for people to show up in urban centers for meetings. You're starting to see uh, more uh, schools restarting. Is, is that going to help or hurt indigenous people? We don't know yet. And I think as we move through these 
various uh, Omicron and different variants that are starting to come. What do we do now? We're in the same position as everybody else. We don't know. Yeah, it's such a strange time of, um, well, we think transition, right? But it, it, it's a, you, you feel like you have to knock on wood or cross your fingers whenever whenever you mention that maybe we're coming to, to the other side um, of the pandemic uh, because we've been fooled too many times. Um, but it, it, it nevertheless, pe- people are trying to, you know, approach this period with a a mindset of transition and and trying to reflect on you know what what good things um, can we uh, pull forward um, and and how can we maybe you know leave some bad habits uh, of the of the prior pandemic um, behind um, one of the things that 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 have come up on on uh, during prior conversations um, on this podcast. Uh, because we we've spoken to a, a lot of different health leaders, um, has been looking at community health infrastructure. Um, are there barriers to access to capital when 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 we think about health infrastructure? Do, do, does it suffer from the the same challenges as as other types of in, infrastructure projects, or, um, or 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 is that is that easier to deal with? The question about healthcare and Indigenous people is a complicated one. Indigenous people in different parts of the country, depending where they are, if they're in the south or the north, rural or remote, fly-in access, winter road only, it's different across the country. So it's impossible to give a blanket answer going, oh, has it been positive or negative? I think what we've seen through this pandemic is that there is a strong focus on community well-being. And that's not just for Indigenous people. Southern uh, urban, uh, non-Indigenous Canadians have come to that point too. How, what's important for us overall? And it's not just that we have a good GDP growth every year or that we have, I don't know, um, access to uh, our credit cards. No, it, it's a focus on what's important for us as a community. Indigenous, non-Indigenous, national, provincial. So Indigenous people, and you ask the question about access to healthcare, has it been lack, uh, not properly funded? It's difficult to answer. Some communities have had great access. They've had uh, priority access to vaccines, uh, have had that ability to, to, to access food and education and, and the services needed, but other communities have had a disastrous time. COVID was a disaster for those communities who were remote and had no way to uh, insulate themselves from the impact, which is what happened to many communities in the North who had to shut down instantly because it, got, it was so difficult to find the vaccines, to find the social distinct, to find the equipment needed to protect their populations. So I'm not answering your question directly. I'm saying it depends on where you are as an Indigenous person and your community to deem whether the healthcare system through the pandemic was good or bad. To start with the positives that have come from the pandemic. I know that sounds strange in some ways. What's the, what's the upside of a global pandemic? <laughs> Um, But what was interesting is that when it started, everyone, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, there was a a pause. We we couldn't go into our offices. We couldn't go to workplace. Uh, Children, you didn't know what was going to happen. So what happened is we focused on what was important. And what was important? Community. Is my family safe? Is my community safe? Do I have enough food? What's important to me overall? 
that I have access to rejuvenating outdoor space where I can be socially distanced from people. I can be healthy. Is, is my environment clean? There was this refocus on well-being that came and it was no longer a rush to work, a rush to make money, a rush to do the things that we used to do. That is a benefit for a lot of people who all of a sudden had time to pause and reflect. There was this well-being moment that we have not really had in our lifetimes. What was interesting watching that as an Indigenous person is that those value systems that were all sudden valued, family, environment, healthcare, those are Indigenous values. And so we saw all of a sudden all of Canada shift to those values. Going forward now and speaking to non-Indigenous people and watching what happens, I think people like the focus on family, self-care, health more in a workplace environment than we had before. That's a positive. Can we keep that? Can we hold that as we go forward? That life is more than consumption. Life is more than production. Life is about well-being. That's a positive. The other part of your question about healthcare infrastructure for Indigenous people, it depends where you are in the country. If you are in an Indigenous community near an urban center or near a health center, you your community will have a different experience than a community who is very far remote or in a fly-in community. Some of the communities in Northern Canada who did not have access to the same healthcare that you would have in urban centers, it was a disastrous time. Crowded health conditions, lack of access to vaccines, lack of access to health professionals. Some of those communities were devastated by the COVID waves as they came through. So that's something as we're going to have to think about as a nation we go forward what does distributive health care for everyone look like how do we make that work that will be what we'll need to face before the next wave comes through either covid or heaven forbid something else heaven forbid indeed um so mark last question um we try to talk about risk not just in terms of of uh of threats um although we do talk about those um we also try to think about it um in terms of opportunities um and the central question that that that, that we have posed at the start of this podcast uh was do you truly value something if you're not thinking about what can take it away and so I would really love to hear your answer. And it doesn't necessarily have to be grounded in infrastructure or access to capital or any of those things. Just just Mark's point of view on that question. We value something more if it can be taken away. The number one thing right now is the climate, the atmosphere. We are facing an ex existential challenge that we've never faced before. And that goes beyond Indigenous. That's everyone. That's what keeps me focused. So yes, we can proceed as we've always done, but something's going to be taken away. And that's too important for all of us. So the questions that we've talked about through this podcast, Indigenous and economic involvement, environmental protections, um, economic opportunities for healthcare or workers, that will all mean nothing if we lose our atmosphere. So 
the pressure for all of us to come up with some sort of solutions that are based on something other than public policy formed in the 1800s is vital. And I think that's where our greatest opportunity lies. And I think because of the mutual threat, we can do it. But we've really got to challenge how we've thought of things and how we've done things and how we want to live going forward overall, not just this is a federal provincial agreement, this is a capital markets versus an investment. No, it's a bigger question about how do we want to live together going forward. That is the challenge. That is the opportunity. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate this time with you and for sharing uh, just uh, the absolutely enormous accumulation and knowledge that you have. Well, thank you. I am very pleased to have participated. Thank you very much.